Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight for our liberties to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for Friday. And typically, I'm ready to end the week. I'm worn out, but now I'm really very energized. And frankly, I feel we need two more days on the clock because uh, there is just so much going on, unsettled business, a lot of unsettling things going on in the world. Um, aside from the things we've been following all week, all the COVID news is always, COVID fascism, what we can do about it, illegal immigration, tons of stuff on crime. Uh, we got this story out of Daytona Beach where a Daytona cop was shot in the head by what appears to be a black supremacist a new Black Panther member. Um, there's, I, I, I didn't even know this, that there's evidently an organization, one of these many black supremacist groups that has some crazy acronym um, that has, you know, a curse word in the name of it. It's NFAC, Black Militia. That's what it's called. And, you know, at a press conference, the Daytona Beach, Beach Police chief said that they're looking into facebook posts by the suspect that i don't think they've caught him yet um he's on the run that indicate he was part of this black militia so it's just very interesting how we hear that the biggest threat is white supremacism when we have cops being shot and this is not an isolated incident so much of the street violence is being done by this And I have a very long article out today, column out, outlining my plan, what should be done. Joe Biden has given us a huge opening on that issue, and I want to get to that on the other side of our interview with our special guest about ivermectin and COVID treatment. But there is a lot to talk talk about on crime in particular. Then we do have, you know, what went on in, in Florida, the collapse in Miami. I'm not trying to insinuate anything but one of the things i found bizarre it didn't even hit me until last night really it's been more than 24 hours by a mile really 30 hours since this has happened you know i i mean obviously we hope we find people alive but presumably there's over a hundred killed and a 12-story building just collapses out of nowhere If nothing else, this is like the biggest tragedy imaginable, and it's really not wall-to-wall coverage. And I'm not saying it needs to be. I'm just saying typically the media indulges tragedies and obsesses about them. Um, This really rivals the uh, Hyatt Regency Skywalk collapse in Kansas City 1981 as the worst collapse ever, Um, even if it's 100% natural. It's a big story, and for some reason it's not. Um, not not the magnitude that it is, 
look, like everyone else, I take a look in that, at that, and it looks like it was an explosion. It looks like a bomb to me. Um, you know, People could have other explanations. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, but if nothing else, it just really is terrible. But you know, in the world we live in today, you really want to make sure. I- I'm just trying to say if it were a terrorist attack, you can't count on our government to pursue that for obvious reasons. Um, so, again, I, I have nothing to say on that other than it just looks awfully eerily similar to a terrorist attack. In my mind, it's very hard to imagine how that could happen naturally, but you never know. I mean, God can make anything happen. So uh, that's just just terrible, terrible situation down there. Um, you know, obviously, every Thursday and Friday now we have the SCOTUS rulings. There's five more left. I was waiting for the big Arizona ruling on ballot harvesting and you know a lot of people have noted that most of the cases this term are boring which is a good thing unfortunately the lower courts are continuing to rule over us so we need supreme court reversals but what a lot of people have noted is that if you look at the boring cases there's a very interesting lineup where it's all sorts of liberals and conservatives joining with each other and that's really how it should be But the minute it gets to the political cases, you know, the liberal judges never deviate, which just tells you that the courts were meant to be boring. They are meant to be super technical. And the minute they get involved in political cases, it wasn't meant to be that the courts resolve that political question more than the political branches because they're going to be political. So you may as well go with the political people who are elected, not with the ones who aren't. Again, just to reiterate that. But it looks like next week we'll probably have um, the remaining big opinions. There's really only one that I care about. Um, There's a lot of cases they should have taken up, and they don't, and that's part of the problem. So that is with that. Now, we have tons of news on COVID. I want to get to with our guest. Uh, First, today's sponsor, uh, Patriot Academy. Folks, I've been promoting ConstitutionCoach.com this year. Uh, their front site trips out to Nevada where we have our great constitution training and you could certainly sign up for the fall. For now, I want to focus on some of the other things they do. Um, they have really the most entertaining and inspirational courses on the constitution ever created, given by Rick Green himself um, at Independence Hall. And their courses are free, they're online. And you could become a Constitution coach to give over his courses. It's a great way for, you know, gathering in your home with 15, 20 other like-minded people and actually starting your own Constitution Action team that we've been creating at at, uh, ConstitutionAction.com. But again, check out his courses at ConstitutionCoach.com. Um, they're already hosting over a thousand courses throughout the nation. This is how you're going to set up the cells in your community to fight back and to start creating uh, this parallel universe that we need to create. So again, go to constitutioncoach.com, the best constitution training around. Also, you want to check out patriotacademy.com. Uh, they have really good, um, uh, Patriot Academy for 16 to 24-year-olds, a, a training every year at the Austin, Texas Capitol. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Now, before we bring on our next guest, I just want to note that, you know, we, we, we talked yesterday about 
the Delta variant and this whole lie, and they're always scaring people about things, and they're saying this is why you have to be vaccinated. And I noted at the time that if you look at the UK data, it actually shows that there are more breakthrough cases among the you know those who were vaccinated than certainly natural infection. And I think this is a really big story, very big story. So my friend at Rational, one of the Rational Ground folks who goes by Woke Zombie on Twitter, um, really broke down the data, and this is tremendous. So if you look at the SIREN study in the UK, S-I-R-E-N, they, they, they did a study of 32,000 healthcare workers. 10,000 were COVID positive during the pandemic, and they defined that it is either a PCR positive or an antibody test. Of those 10,000, only 241 during the entire pandemic were reinfected. Okay? So that is a 0.2 reinfection rate. Now, the delta has increased from 0% to 90% of all cases in the U- in the UK. And yet still that the reinfection rate has flatlined. So this scariness of the breakthrough of Delta, the 0.2 reinfection rate, um, I'm sorry, uh, 0.2 reinfections per 1,000 cases, it's much less than 0.2 per 1,000 cases, remained flat through the Delta predominating in the UK, going from 0 to 90% of cases. Meanwhile, since the start of Delta in February, over 4,000 of the 60,000 infections have been complete breakthrough infections of the vaccine. So this is a breakthrough rate of 67.4 per 100,000. Now... If you, if you break it down further, the per, hundred, the per thousand for each segment, the highest rate is among unvac- unvaccinated, but the rates of vaccines aren't exactly low. So basically, if you look at their math there, natural infection rate, reinfection rate, is 0.2 per thousand. The vaccine breakthrough rate is 68 per thousand. Now, 68 per 1,000, it's still lower than the rate among non-vaccinated. I was never going to tell you this zero efficacy, even short term. The issue is the side effects aren't worth it for most people. But the bigger scandal here is that they're treating natural infection as if it's nothing and the vaccine as if it's impervious. And yet, you know, according to the data here, it is exponentially more, exponentially more um, natural infection, that is, is exponentially greater protection than the vaccine. So very interesting math there. So this notion that the Delta could somehow quash natural infection is nonsense. 
to the extent it's spreading, it's it's you know it's just whatever variant is around, it's going to get gradually the people that didn't get it yet, um, or a certain percentage of those that were vaccinated. Now, folks, just to punctuate this point, you take a look at the news and you see Israel is worrying about a case incline, even though deaths aren't going up. And, you know, the case incline is starting. It's very mild, um, very hard to even tell if you weren't testing obsessively. Not to say that they're not necessarily going to have a little bit of a wave, but I think we all know, again, most places are over the hump to where hospitals could even possibly get busy from this. But now we've had this zero COVID goal. That seems to be the goal in many countries, zero COVID, which is very difficult when you have a new virus that appears to be kind of endemic and uh, very durable and nothing seems to work. So, you know, Israel did, you know, when Israel does something, they do it intensely. I mean, it's a small country. They follow orders. They're used to that. When they did lockdown and masks, they did it very intensely. And nonetheless, they had a massive winter spread. So, you know, masks work so well that we were told that, um, you know, we, we don't need anything else. But then we needed to do the vaccines. And then the vaccines were supposed to work so well. So they did the vaccines like every other country did, but even more. And now they're saying, well, you got to wear the mask, even though they're all vaccinated. So... What what appears to be going on, and it's going to go on everywhere, is, again, natural infection is almost impervious. The vaccines seem to be working to a certain extent, but in my view, not as well as the natural infection. And if your goal is zero COVID, you're always going to find it. And if that is going to be a pretext to induce fear and to continue some of these policies indefinitely, like Israel going back to masking. I think there's signs of that, that if we had that happen in the U.S., you're going to have a lot of pressure. It's because people feel like they have nothing, so they're going to continue turning to the solutions that they know of, whether there's evidence they work or not. And the 800-pound gorilla in the room is that 15 months into this, at a governmental level, at a media level, at a cultural level, we're talking about everything you can do, non-pharmaceutical interventions. But we don't seem to be talking about pharmaceutical interventions. Well, you know, it's a medical problem. Why don't you treat it? This is the most studied virus of all time. We should know exactly how it works, exactly how you get a cytokine storm. Um, we should see the warning signs, know who is at risk. And really, everyone should have guidance on what to do, and certainly doctors should have guidance. Yet, you know, you talk to most people, including most PCPs, and it's like, don't get it. Wear a mask. Okay, but what if I get it anyway? Um, then Now what do I do? And you don't really hear much other than wait till you can't breathe and go to the ER, and we either have very expensive remdesivir for you, maybe dexamethasone as the as the primary um, steroid and, you know, maybe has some efficacy and a ventilator. And really, is that all there is? So with us today is a very special guest. I've really come to love his videos, Dr. Mobin Syed. He's the founder of Dr. Bean. Check it out on, online. It's a medical educational program. He hosts seminars. So it's really important to hear from someone who educates doctors 
um, a medical educator. He has these terrific medical lectures on YouTube. Um, you guys got to check it out. I first saw some of his uh, interviews with Dr. Uh, Pierre Corey on ivermectin. I was like, wow, there's a lot there. So I figured I'd get him on the show to explain to laymen like myself and many of you in the audience, what is the state of play with ivermectin and other treatments? Dr. Mobin, thanks so much for joining us today. Daniel, thank you very much for having me. Well, I like I said, I love your videos, and I've learned so much from them, and I wanted to give over some of this to my audience. who they, They're just starving for information. I will tell you, I am a political guy, and you know that. I write a lot about all sorts of political issues, but I've never gotten a greater reception and more hits on shows, on articles, than when I write about COVID treatment. People are just starving for information, and it shouldn't even be political. What is the state of play with ivermectin? Are Do you feel we are gaining traction in making this more mainstream among doctors? So, so very good question. And uh, just a quick context. I actually agree with you that we as a planet are in a state of uh, crisis. So the attention to this virus, attention to try to find out the solutions is on everybody's mind. When in history has the whole planet at once became focused on one issue? I think this is the only time I can cite. So I really um, like this, that we are all looking to figure out the solutions. Now, considering that our healthcare authorities have dropped the ball in a, in a huge way, let's look at the, uh, the therapeutics, as you said, are there therapeutics available or not? And then specifically ivermectin. Ivermectin, the story was, I think we all know that Kelly from Australia, Dr. Kelly and his team, they did an experiment very early on in, during the pandemic. And they said, look, if you put ivermectin on cells that are infected with SARS-CoV-2, within 48 hours, the, the virus is gone. From there, a doctor in Bangladesh, Dr. Tariq Alim, he started doing this uh, management of the patients, COVID patient, using ivermectin plus doxycycline. And he came back and he said, guys, I had great results. I started talking about it. I'm an educator. I started using ivermectin for my patients as well. And I had great results, great results. Before that, I was using hydroxy. So uh, media, healthcare establishments, people with, I guess, um, I won't be wrong in saying people with big egos, but less inclination towards looking for uh, newer possibilities. They all started, first they started hating hydroxy. Then when the ivermectin came in, they simply ignored it. I am grateful to Dr. Pierre Corey and his efforts and then his team that he started pushing ivermectin at a time when he was actively, shall I say, demonized for it. He was, mm. he was silenced for it. He was, uh, uh, all that can be thrown at a person for saying something that uh, majority does not agree was done to him. But he kept going 
I had asked him at one point that, hey, you are the tip of the spear. How does it feel? And you can imagine how does it feel, but he kept going. And now the situation is, ivermectin is actually gaining traction now. You are talking about it. There are many others who have started talking about it. This was a thing compared to hydroxy. This was a thing that they just ignored it. But now it is not being ignored anymore. Look at India, how well they are performing with ivermectin. Look at Pakistan, they perform very well with ivermectin. Many other countries have used ivermectin where they didn't have a choice. And they were looking for something to help. And think about it from a doctor's point of view. I'm a doctor. I get a patient who's sitting across me at a table and saying, I have this problem. Do you think I would care at that time that who is pro-ivermectin or, or who is anti-ivermectin? I would have to figure out how do I help this patient? How do I keep them safe? This is how the ivermectin actually kept gaining grassroot traction. On top of this, this is a very important thing to notice. It's not just that some people started using it. Ivermectin started showing results. And just very quick and briefly, why does it show those results? One, uh, it is uh, an in silico study that shows that ivermectin can bind with uh, spike protein. So it disrupts, it stalls the entry of a virus in a cell. We want that. It reduces cells replication, uh, the virus's replication. Inside the, the cell, when the virus is there, ivermectin disrupts some of the virus enzymes that are helping the virus make its daughters or make its offsprings. One of those is mm. RDRP, and ivermectin stalls that. The second one is three uh, chymotrypsin-like proteases, or we call it MPRO. Ivermectin stalls that. Then there is important alpha and beta, which Kelly uh, found out, and uh, ivermectin disrupts that. Then there is nuclear factor kappa B. Those in the audience who are uh, related to medicine, they would recognize these. It modulates that as well. The result is that it reduces the replication of the virus sufficient enough that virus becomes more of a nuisance, like a common cold compared to something that can kill. I want to make sure that it is not 100%. The prophylactic studies showed efficacy anywhere from 74% and above. We have uh, results from Dr. Teslari's uh, meta-analysis as well that shows it is uh, for the risk of death for the patients who are using ivermectin is, I believe, between 60 to 70% lesser than others. So not 100%. But even if I can save one person more, it is good enough. And then it is cheap, it is safe. So sorry for this little diversion. Going back to the, the mainstream or the usage of the state of the affairs, more and more people, doctors, have started using it. More and more patients have started becoming aware of its functionality. There was a time in the beginning of the ivermectin usage, people would actually legitimately say, well, this is a dewormer. Why are you giving it for antiviral effects? And then mm. slowly they realize that, hey, this is a molecule. A molecule can do m multiple things, just like a car can be used for multiple purposes. So now I think the traction is there. I think what is going to happen is, and this will be tragic, but I think this is what's going to happen. 
the big pharma, the companies that have more interest in money than the people, they're going to copy or take hints from ivermectin's function, create drugs that would look the same or that would attack the same areas of the virus and try to then make them newer drugs which they can sell for higher prices, which they can have patent on, and that is how they're going to do it. But wow. I think under the hood, ivermectin would continue to be superior and effective. So what scares me about this conversation is, you know, I, I try to pride myself on being on top of a lot of things, and people come to me for opinions and all sorts of public policy issues. But when it comes to things like this that are super technical, medical, you have to have years of training. You know, it, it's all Greek to me. I, I never heard of this stuff. Never heard of ivermectin before. I never heard of methylprednisone before. And, you know, typically you count on people who you trust. And there's there's a poll out just yesterday in the Hill Americans put the most trust in their doctor for COVID. So they pulled people, you know, you trust government, Biden, Fauci, Trump, and and they and everyone's like, I trust my doctor. But one of the most disappointing things I've found the last year is that the doctors nowadays, and I want to get your view as a medical educator, the doctors nowadays seem to be the majority of them just drink out of the trough. Whatever the NIH puts out. That's the universe of their study. Nothing else exists. And most PCPs I know around where I live, even months into this, they have nothing to say other than politics. Like, here, uh, you know, don't go quarantine for this or mask for this. But, you know, I, we have politicians for that. As a doctor, I want to hear how the virus works. And correct me if I'm wrong, you know, it, while it's potentially deadly, it's not like your eyes spontaneously combust or something. It, it's something that has a logical process that after a few weeks, we we understood how it works. And it seems like there are a lot of antiviral, anti-inflammatory cocktails out there. Why are there so few doctors that are willing to do their job and that is treated? And outside the hospital, too. So, very interesting uh, question and I have been tackling this one topic for some time. I've been discussing this with the Cool Beans, the, the folks who are the audience who, who talk with me on a daily basis. I've been talking with my colleagues uh, in medical sciences. I've been talking with my friends, families. So here is how I have come to understand the current situation. I've learned through this pandemic or oh, let me back up for a second. When the pandemic started, my thought was the whole world, the planet as a unit has become stuck in a crisis. And we will all as a unit will get out of it together by putting our energies and focus in the right directions. And I thought that anyone who would turn a stone and say, I found something here, we will go inspect what is in there and see if we can use that to help. That is how I thought will the things go. And I was very much um, uh, looking forward towards U.S. Uh, I'm an American. I love my country here. And I love and I feel proud that we are ahead of many countries for medicine. So I was very much of the opinion that we will break ground and we will show how things go. But here is what I found out, to my disappointment. A lot of doctors 
unfortunately become doctors and then they become a routine practitioner who knows that in my community here are the type of diseases that are common here are the medicines that i'm going to use here is the follow up that is going to happen and this is my daily routine mm-hmm. and from breaking away from that routine for whatever reason is it a mental um, barrier to learn more and or is it not needed or is it the um, apprehension that what is over there is too much to go and chase and figure it out or is it that the NIH and CDCs and FDAs are not doing their leadership correctly and I'm sitting here waiting for what they would say is what I'll do so there is a group of doctors who are in that state of mind where they are doing a routine job and until they're told to change that routine they're going to just march ahead with that unfortunately that is a majority second group is that who is doing research who is listening to the study is not the media and please realize a majority of the doctors listen to the media and use that as their breaking uh, ground for what is next they're not using researches and studies majority of them so now what happens is there is another yeah. group who is looking at the studies however their hands are still tied because maybe they're working in a hospital or they're working in a setting where the the protocols are determined above them and then going against the protocol puts them or their licenses in jeopardy so they are also knowingly that hey i know there is something in there i know we can help but they still have to continue to toe the line And do you think this uh, so before you get to group 3 on group 2 do you think that stems from this revolution over the past decade or so moving away from private practice to corporate practice of medicine that's it yes mm. and and looking at this whole pandemic so before i go to the third group just expanding a little bit on your point here the healthcare system in the us one uh, once i did a talk in which i wanted to be cute about describing it without throwing stones uh, i showed a little kitten who was playing with a ball of yarn and had it all stuck around it and was stuck in it and i said in the us the red tape the bureaucracy the protocols the need to be streamlined has put us in this state that we are stuck in our own ball of yarn and we could not jump out of it to become an exceptional state to handle an exception in the system and daniel there is a very important additional point here and that is in our mainstream medicine medical practice those diseases and illnesses that are in the mainstream they get a lot of attention and help and for cheap and timely but those who are exceptions those who do not fit this criteria they actually do not get much help they end up dying they end up not being helped now unfortunately all of us became an exception because of covid and our healthcare system showed us wow. that it is not prepared to handle exceptions well we all lost to our own system 
So mm. if I could then go to the third point, and you're absolutely correct. The insurance system, the corporate medical system, and their combination is deadly for us, and we are just seeing it in the pandemic. Because and, and this invited just all the protocols, policies, um, and 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 you know there's the liability. So they just look at the NIH. Oh, okay, there's remdesivir, maybe dexamethasone, and nothing else. And they're never going to look outside of that it, because it just it just scared me that, you know, there's things I know I don't know. And then there's things I know I do know. And there's things that these doctors have been saying that a first grader knows is false. I mean, just absurd, laughable things like a pregnant woman coming in. They have medical grade PPE, PPE plus they got it, plus they were vaccinated and you know, if she doesn't wear a mask, somehow their medical grade PPE doesn't work, but she puts on a little cloth mask, then now it's okay. I mean, some of these just absurd things. And you know, yesterday I talked about on my show, this doctor in, in Texas, a big infectious disease doctor, was just saying, um, you know, RSV was gone because of masks, and now it's surging because we're not wearing masks. And literally the timing and location, and it just refuted by basic common sense. Um, that it's so much more viral interference than 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 a human input, but but they just say this stuff, and and what scares me is how many other things are they getting wrong? You, you know, is is this an aberration, or are there other things that have become so political? Um, you know, where there are more you know cheaper cures to things, common sense ways of dealing with things, but because of big pharma and the insurance system, we're just chasing our tail. Uh, I think you're absolutely correct. And what happened was pandemic showed us what happens when things are out of norm and how the system that we have set up, and we are very proud of it, we are the leaders in the world, that system fails disastrously whenever mm. an exception needs to be handled. And I talk about this very often with the cool beans on my shows that, guys, please know this was happening to many exceptions already. And they were not surf they were not coming up to surface because they were too small in number. And then all of us became an exception and now we all got slapped around by the system. I mean just think about it. What do we do to the type one diabetics, youngsters? I know youngsters who die because they could not get uh, insulin. Is this something that we should do for a country like US? This is the failure of the system. It was just happening in an exceptional state for some people. Now it is happening to all of us. This, mm. if it does not result in a correction of the system afterwards or even now, then we as a nation have failed once, paid a huge price, and are ready to fail again. Yeah. And, 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 and doctor, it's not money. Like the irony is, I mean, we've thrown more money at this than the whole world put together, the amount of money that has been sunk into hospitals. But then again, it seems like that kind of is the problem where, where you know, some countries have full socialized medicine. America is viewed as free, but it never was. It's this hybrid of, I often call it venture socialism, where you have a very heavy government hand, but it's funneled through this well-connected 
supposedly private corporate entities, but they're they're all in with government. So you just wind up spending a ton of money, ton of middlemen, ton of parasites, and you know it's almost like we're incentivizing them to come up with ineffective, expensive things, um, like we're seeing with Merck now. Uh, absolutely. And um, this is so interesting. We, we're ta- we are speaking about this for the first time, so it's not that we had swapped our notes. I had been exactly. <laughs> talking with, with my uh, Cool Bean community that I have worked in larger organizations before, and large organizations usually have a tons of people who are lobbyists for them who go on talk with congressmen, who go on talk with other influencers, decision makers, they keep a good contact with them. They bring them out for dinners and talks and they say, hey, we are lobbying, we are educating you, we are informing you so your decisions could be better. Eventually at the end of the day, that is an, a system, a sugar-coated system of influencing or allowing the influence. So in the medicine that ha- happens too, why does a Merck drug like Malnupiravir, or let's to, uh, take Bamlanivimab. Look at the Bamlanivimab's clinical trial that was done on the basis of which that was approved. There were total about 400-something patients in it. Three groups were made up of various doses of Bamlanivimab, almost 100 each, and one was placebo. So if essentially, at the end of the day, there were two groups 100 for one dose and 100 for placebo. And this is a phase two trial. And FDA went ahead and approved the drug based on the phase two trial, based on just 200 people's testing, trialing, without any phase three trial. And here they keep dragging their foot for ivermectin all the time. What happened in the case of Bamlanivimab or what would happen with just billions of dollars of purchase order, what is going on there? I am sure, and this is my conjecture, I may be totally wrong and I'm fine if I'm wrong, but I still feel that someone in, in Merck picked up a phone and called someone and said, look, what do you need for, what, what are the things that you need? What is your formality here? And they said, well, bring us a trial, this many people that should show this, and we'll go from there. And they got fed that trial, and they said, good, go ahead. And on the other hand, there are, ivermectin is just one example. There are monoclonal antibody producers. I, I had interviewed them who never went anywhere and who had invented the medicine within two, three weeks of the uh, early time of pandemic. They were never looked at. Why? Were they bad? No, the technology is the same. So the, I think there is lobbying going on. There are contacts going on. I don't think it's always financial or money exchanges, but there is much more exchange than those things that are happening. And that is killing us. And that is causing all this damage that we're seeing. And just very quickly, I want to go back to the third group of doctors. The third mm. group are the doctors like Dr. Piakori. These are the ones who came up and said, you know what? We know there is something that is working. We want us to use it. We want us to spread it. We want us to save more people with that thing while you keep doing all other things that you're doing. I don't think that Piakori came out and said, 
stop remdesivir or stop dexamethasone or stop something else. He was saying, hey, guys, there is something here. Use this as well. Give it a chance as well. And tell me this, politics aside, what was the benefit of Pia's message? We would have had the whole U.S. safe by doing that. Even if it is 74% prophylactic efficacy, even when it is 60 to 70% reduction in death, isn't that a lot? Yep. And, and, and that's what got me right away when I saw people like that. To me, so, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a political guy, so I see a lot of things happening and I automatically have a political leaning on it. But what do I do when I hear, all right, you know, Pierre Corey says methylprednisone is better than dexamethasone. Well, gee, I could barely pronounce either of them and never heard of them. So I have no preconceived opinion. But when I started seeing this stuff, I was like, wait a minute. We know on one side there's a ton of money to be made. But on the other side, and this started with hydroxy, where you had doctors from all different countries, backgrounds, grassroots. There was no dog in that fight. To me, without knowing anything, there had to have been legitimacy to that. And then when I saw Dr. Corey's testimony, so you know, my, I, I've spent 15 years following all sorts of congressional testimony, and immediately I have strong opinions on whatever is said. Because immediately it's clear, okay, is that witness a right-leaning guy or a left-leaning guy? Here he comes in as a pulmonologist and intensivist, and he's practically in tears treating people and says, there's this drug ivermectin that I never heard of works. I'm like, well, there's got to be legitimacy to that. We all need to listen to that. Uh, there's nothing right or left. And it just went in the go. Well, not only did it go in the garbage, YouTube um, censored it. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was unbelievable. And and then I just want to bring this, uh, Dr. Bean, I know we're almost out of time. I want to get your, your view on, on some of what we're seeing with the vaccines. I could have never believed that they would introduce something to the world that is so potent that they're going to make it universal, that you have to get it. A billion people are going to get it, and that it would. That in my mind, I could never imagine that they would cut corners and there would be so many problems. So if it's like that, it must be good. It must be good. But then when I see the little bit of smoke and fire we are seeing, and I see the insane amount of censorship, and then when they say one thing is not happening, but then it's proven right, and then they quash research on every other alternative, I say to myself. How could I not think that there's not more smoke and fire there that we don't see? Absolutely. So I'm going to give two parts, my answer in two parts. And please, if we are out of time, you can cut that. First is the censorship. Censorship has two bad outcomes at this time. One is spread of some information that could be useful for some people. And stopping that spread is hurtful, harmful. And the second part is when historians, for example, journalists like you or journalism students in the future, when they would start looking back at the pandemic and say, what were people doing at that time? We would be their ancestors at that time. So they'll say, what were our ancestors doing? And they would go and scour the messages on Twitter and Facebooks and Instagrams and other places and YouTubes and say, was it a Pierre Corey who was talking about ivermectin? What were they doing? And do you know what they'll find out? Majority of the information is scrubbed. So they'll find out that people were really not trying to get out of it. They were just sitting on their laurels waiting for vaccines to come in. That damage that social media has caused by censorship of of erasing a 
part of the footprint of our current efforts is huge for future. They are mm. erasing our history as it is happening. So that that is just my little rant about the censorship. Now let's go to the the uh, vaccines. I have gotten vaccines. I am a pro-vaccine person. However, at the same time, what I'm seeing is, and um, Daniel, I've gotten so much of uh, the heat because of this. When clotting cases started emerging, I was one of the early doctors who started saying, this is because of the vaccine. We need to figure out how to manage them. Look, check, check my position out. This is a position that confuses people. They say, if you are pro-vax, you should always talk positive for the vax. When you talk about the negative things, you look like an anti-vax. What they do not understand is, I am a doctor. And when I am, as a doctor, looking at a, an intervention, I have to look at pros and cons both. And I am a medical educator. That means I have to describe both. My opinion with the vaccines, the adenovirus-based vaccines have a propensity to cause clotting and for the women under 50 years of age. This was not sufficient for the FDAs to come out and say, we recognize that under 50 years of age, this can cause clotting. We'll, we're going to put that on a label. What the, putting that on a label would not fix that. What you should have come out and said was, women under 50 years of age, don't take adenovirus-based vaccines. It is not for you. We cannot take that risk of even two women or one woman dying yep. because we can save it. Look, if we could not save, let's say there was no vaccine, no therapeutic, and the pandemic was raging, could we do anything? No. Let's say now we had some therapeutic that would kill half the people and not other half, but that was the only option. Could we do anything? No. Here, when the clotting occurs, we know who gets it, and we know how to manage it. We know how to prevent it. We have options for alternatives. In such case, they should have come out and said, you know what? Women under 50, please don't take it, number one. Number two, we know that messenger RNA-based vaccines, Moderna's and um, Pfizer's, they are causing inflammation in younger people, 30 years and young men. We should have come out and said, children under 30 years of age, for me, they're children, I'm, I'm older. Children under 30 <laughs> years of age, men, you are not supposed to take messenger RNA vaccines. For you, here is the adenovirus-based vaccine. Or if there is no choice, this is the only thing you can take, then here is how your doctor would follow a protocol. Here are the tests they would do. Here is the eye observation they'll keep on you. And for the next two weeks when you get the vaccine, we will make sure that you don't get in trouble. They have not done any of that. That is what makes me angry. That preventable outcomes should be prevented. They should not be swept under the rug to say, well, the risk-benefit analysis showed that the benefit is still much more than the risk. Uh, I wish I could curse here to say, dudes, this is something that can be managed, that can have an algorithm, that can have a choice, do that. This is a disaster on our healthcare authorities' yes. decisions. 
Yes, and again, and when you see, you know, I I still can't articulate the science of the mRNAs and the science of everything that happens molecularly with the virus, but I do know data that I could look yeah. at because that you don't have to be a doctor. And there are certain things I'm gray on, but certain things I know. And I could read literature and studies. And you see two things are ironclad. Immunity from natural infection and children are not at risk in any meaningful way that we ever, uh, you know, assess risk. And yet they dove headfirst into both of those and made it as if you're a kid, it's the same as you're 75. And if you had the infection, it's the same as you didn't. It's worth nothing. You must get the vaccine. I know that's BS. So then what that tells me is what else is problematic? And, and, we, and we know why, because, you know, 40% of the country roughly got it. So, you know, that would, that they would lose 40% of the market share. Uh, children are the lar- largest remaining um, unvaccinated demographic. So that's really where, where the numbers are, and they, they want to get it. It has nothing to do with, with medicine. And it just scares me thinking ahead, what else can I tr- trust? You know, I've always gotten vaccines. I've, I have people in the audience that are very, you know, virulently against them. But, you know, I've, I've gotten them and I've always thought things like the MMR have worked. Um, but, you know, I was born in, in, in the mid 80s where I think there were three vaccines. Now there's about 30 of them. And I'm starting to really wonder, you know, some of these, the rotavirus, some of the more nebulous ones in recent years, are they really necessary? And is it, you know, medicine concern for the human being following the Nuremberg Protocols code that's driving this? Or is it politics and money? It's a very unsettling question. And I, I actually agree with you. And um, my audience knows that I am very sensitive about making decisions about children because of a death of a very close family member who was 19 years of old age. And I know that the devastation to this date uh, that is that descended on our family uh, is it, it has made me disabled about talking about children either way. But the latest CDC discussion or, or the let me put their their behavior in front of us and we can actually all assess by ourselves. So the cardiac inflammation, CDC knows that 9% is the population of the children who are vaccinated so far. But 53% of cardiac issues occurred in this 9% of the population. That means there is a unfair leaning of this bad outcome towards children. They also know that children are better protected even if they get the uh, actual natural infection. With this data, I would have expected that they would come in and they'll say, you know what, we looked at it, the 9% of population getting 53% of the cases, we should stop here, we should think about it, we, we're going to come back with a protocol to say, don't use this vaccine or use that vaccine, or if you're going to take the vaccine only for the patients with the comorbidities, or here is a protocol for the doctor to say, if the inflammation occurs, do the following things. Instead, their behavior was, hey, today's Juneteenth, we are going to observe this holiday and we'll discuss next week what we should do. This right away told me that, man, they're just so out of it that they don't even care. And that also told me that they know what they're going to say. 
they knew that we're going to say, hey, this is a risk-benefit analysis, keep going. And so they say it this week or they say it next week, does it matter? No, they had no urgency. Then the next week they came in and as expected, they simply said, we looked at the data, the risk-benefit is still more towards the benefit, keep going. This is what they did with the clotting and women as well. I still cannot believe, I was reading it, I do not know if it was correctly quoted or not, in the CNN, I have the link to that article if anybody wants to have that. In the CNN, and now I'm going to paraphrase and maybe wrong, the, one of the representatives from the CDC or whoever was at committee said, we did not stop it for women because it would become hard to explain. It would become wow. hard to explain. That is why you said, don't stop, let women die. Let them have clotting. I remember a, a mother called me and she said, my daughter got this vaccine and she's in the hospital after clotting. She was in New York. And can you imagine a mother's word? She said she's back now after being in ICU for a couple of days. She's different from the way she used to be. She didn't say that the stroke has caused brain damage. She was a mother and she said, She's different from the way she used to be, and we are hoping that she would make full recovery. Wow. This is what we are letting people go through just because we think it is hard to explain. Well, I think what and, they mean by that, I, I think they're, they're actually being very accurate, that they want to push this pedal to the metal and even coerce it. I mean, the the the... You know, colleges are forcing youngsters to get it. A lot of workplaces, a lot of government entities, certainly locally. There's definitely local mandates, places like New York City, San Francisco. So they can't have a nuance and say, well, for you, it's kind of harmful. But for you, you must take it. I mean, there's never been anything like that before. So they have to just, you know, hey, because of the political outcome, this is what we're going to do. And that scares me. I know with pregnant women, we don't even give them uh, ibuprofen. And yet here we're we're just shoving it on them, and we're talking about women primarily in their 20s and 30s. And my gosh, if there's one thing we've learned about the virus, even to the extent you could find young people um, that have a rough go at the virus, it's almost always men. I mean, women in their 20s and 30s really are um, – yeah, I've never heard of anyone getting it bad in, in that demographic, and and, and we're, we're just not doing that, um, that analysis. And, and that's why, doctor, it just scares me. You know, how many other things, whether it's cancer, whether it's treatment of other pathogens, are we not innovating? Are we not following the real science because of ulterior motives? And that really, it's just very unsettling because I think when it comes to economic issues, we can often see it. Any, anyone could, could study that. But something like this, I mean, people like myself are in the dark. I wouldn't know how to decipher what an mRNA is and what it does and why it would cause myocarditis, which I never even heard of until this. You know, th that's what's very scary. And and I think, you know, is there any effort? I, I, I've taken a lot of your time. I want to leave it with this, doctor. Is there any effort in circles that you travel in to use this as a cathartic experience and say, we really need to form some sort of association, not just to push COVID treatments and ivermectin, IMAF and whatever, but to really start putting out that informed information to the public 
that clearly they're not going to get from the government, the media, and the medical establishment? So uh, good news is yes, although these are in the beginning. For example, there are many doctors who have said, and I'm going to repeat that part as well. I have said that WHOs and CDCs and FDAs have become useless. They're not irrelevant because they're causing damage. Irrelevant means they're saying something or not saying something is, is equal for us. But no, when they say something, they cause damage because the others follow them incorrectly or, or their incorrect messages followed by people that causes harm. So they're relevant, but in a negative way. The result of that is, I believe, just like we have open you know, source code, or software engineering, which is open, or uh, architecture of things that are open, meaning the society can participate, people can come together to do it. We need an open WHO. This WHO, I know we cannot insist that tear it down. That's not going to happen. We cannot hold our breath for that. Instead, a parallel WHO-like entity needs to come together by the people. Maybe FSCCC should rise up and we should support them and say, you are our next WHO, you are our next FDA and CDC. And here is how it would work. They will, of course, not get the government approval because they're not a government agency. But as they become an open agency where people come in and they drive medicine, now there would be two opinions available to doctors. On one hand, mm. they'll say, okay, what did CDC say? And they'll say, okay, CDC said, hey, don't care for anything, or stay at home and you would wear a mask and you would get, when you are in the hospital, we'll put you on a ventilator and give you a designated <laughs> and stuff. And then on the other end, there'll be FLCCC and they would say, hey, doctors, do an early aggressive treatment, do prophylaxis with ivermectin and keep your patient's vitamin D levels correct. And when they become sick, make sure that they have higher dose of you know, ivermectin. So there is a protocol there. And now a doctor can look at that and say, okay, this makes more sense. This open organization is making more sense. So I'm going to use them and I'm going to support them. So I think this is the beginning of a realization that we have a disaster in terms of the red tape, bureaucracy, connections, influences, and we need to have something in parallel. I don't think we need to first tear down these departments because we cannot. And we would fail if we try to attempt to bring them down. The only thing to do is let them do what they're doing, produce another um, another organization that shows a contrasting point to say, here is the right medicine and here is the corrupted medicine. And then people would make a decision and I think things would start becoming better. And and if indeed that comes out, something good would indeed uh, grow out of this uh, whole pandemic Correct. and the response to it. Um, certainly great insights, folks. You could find Dr. Bean on, on YouTube, Dr. Bean Medical Lectures. Um, very worthwhile, very detailed. I've really been meaning to get you on for a while. Thanks so much for joining us, and I really hope you come back again. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. So, folks, again, that was Dr. Mobin Syed, founder of Dr. Bean Medical Educational Program. And it, it's funny, I, I didn't speak with him beforehand, and there's so much to talk about. Uh, originally, I want to talk more about the mechanics of the treatment, but I myself, when I saw he was a medical educator, I kind of steered it in a different direction because I was just fascinated in this 
problem that we're seeing that most doctors nowadays, especially the younger ones uh, being produced from the modern medical schools are just like drones. They, they don't think for themselves. And I would speak to doctors and I'm like, look, I know there's things I don't know, but evidently I know more than you do. I mean, they, they wouldn't even be up on the medical literature on, on COVID. Um, forget about the data trends. I mean, that they knew nothing about these guys and, and they, they just offer nothing. And I think that's a really important thing we got to at the end, which is that we need a parallel universe. This is what we're talking about in economy and governments and federalism, you know, states breaking off even. This is part of it, and he's right. It's funny. We actually think alike because I think the, this way more broadly politically. I don't think we could ever destroy their stuff and take over their stuff and win over their stuff, which is why I've moved away from the federal fight. Um, the best we can do is say, hey, do we have an area where we kind of have a lot of support and then just – start a parallel there that's the best we can do evacuate ourselves from what they're doing um rather than somehow taking over their stuff um but he's right um the the fault line with covid really was brewing for a long time and it was this government corporate practice of medicine that it became bureaucratic it became about money it became about power it became about a political agenda and the people talking about following the science the most are actually following it the least. And it's, it's, it's nothing about that. You, you look to people like, um, Dr. Bean, you look at Pierre Corey there, there's no way you could ascertain any political motivation. Um, there, there's no benefit to this other than, Hey, this works. Um, Dr. Bean's an interesting guy. It seems like just his bio is very much into medical innovation. Uh, and that's what it needs to be, uh, individual doctors just assessing what works, what doesn't. Um, I'm kind of like a political doctor, and I look at the patient and see, hey, this ain't working. We need to try something new, and I'm always looking for new ideas. So I appreciate someone thinking about that from a medical perspective, really enjoyed that. And I would just say what I'm working on politically is, number one, um, to – push legislation in each state legislature. We need to push this emergency. You know, in, in, in Texas, they're having a special session July 8th. We absolutely positively need to make sure – I would make ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine over the counter, but, but short of that, at least make sure that doctors and pharmacists can't be punished for prescribing, for dispensing these uh, drugs. And then also – States are flush with cash that they don't even know what to do with with the COVID funding bills. Rather than putting in these departments of health to go and you know test and trace and mask and all this garbage and, and, and promote the vaccine even more and mandate it, how about studying cheap repurposed off-label therapeutics? And not just COVID. Mono. The flu. Now that we have all this money and observation and research, do something with it to actually help the public. That's what public health should be about, not controlling people's lives. But hey, you know, this virus seems to be percolating in your area. You might want to check your vitamin D levels. You might want to um, prophylax on this. Empower people. But you see, if you empower the people, guess who is not empowered? The system. And that's why 
They can never pursue this avenue. So, folks, uh, I wound up having Dr. Bean on for really two parts because I just thought he had so many good things to say. Uh, so I didn't get to some of the crime stories. Again, we'll watch what's going on in Florida, um, both with that uh, black supremacist, uh, what, what's his name, the Black Panther shooting of the cop in Daytona Beach, also uh, the collapse in Miami, what's going on there. Uh, is there a terrorism angle, or are, are we able to rule that out? We'll, we'll hopefully know by Monday. Have a terrific weekend. Send this show, like all others, to all your friends and relatives. Um, again, we need to follow alternative sources, and that's what this show is all about. Um, one of the one of the blessings of this whole COVID thing is the amount of new friends I've made, and you know, and again, it's not even political. I have no clue what this guy's politics are. I have no clue. Um, I don't know, but even if he would be a liberal, I wouldn't care. I mean. The point is, we need people to at least think outside the box. Don't drink out of the trough and don't trust the system. And that's really where this new realignment in politics in America is going gonna, is gonna to go in the, in, the, in the future. Till next week, we'll be back same time, same place on Monday. God bless you all, and thank you for listening.